Welcome to Brainchild, a CanLearn Society podcast. This is a podcast that is dedicated to bringing you trustworthy information about topics related to child development, mental health, learning disabilities, ADHD, and autism. Join our host, registered psychologist Krista Forand, as she interviews knowledgeable researchers and clinicians to provide families with the most up-to-date information on child development and disorders. To stay connected, visit canlearnsociety.ca, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. If you have a specific topic that you would like to hear about on our podcast, please send your suggestions to brainchild at canlearnsociety.ca. CanLearn Society is a not-for-profit organization located in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We serve children, youth, and adults who have literacy, attention, and learning challenges. For more information about CanLearn, check out our website at canlearnsociety.ca. At CanLearn, we are dedicated to unlocking potential so all can learn. Hello everyone and welcome to our very first episode of Brainchild Podcast. It's brought to you by CanLearn Society. My name is Krista Forand and I'm a registered psychologist at CanLearn Society here in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And uh, we're super excited to be able to launch our new podcast. Some of you may be familiar with um, our other podcast, Inside ADHD, which was a project through our ADHD Families website. Uh, Those podcast episodes are still available, so if you haven't listened to them or if you want to listen to some of your favorite episodes, you can go to iTunes or your favorite podcast player and search for Inside ADHD and and check those episodes out as well. But uh, at Brainchild, we're actually excited because we're going to be able to uh, talk about topics not just related to ADHD but to some broader areas uh, such as learning and autism and child development and parenting and all sorts of stuff that we hope will be very helpful to our listeners. In this um, series we've teamed up with the Oworko Center here in Calgary and the Oworko Center is really great because it's a group of researchers who work together to research various topics uh, related to the things I just mentioned, things like child development, parenting, um, things like toxic stress, which we'll definitely be talking about more uh, in the coming months. Um, And this month's episode here in November, we're very excited to present um, the topic of parenting with researcher Dr. Nicole Letourneau. And she's got some really amazing things to share about some of the studies that she's been a part of over the years. Um, She also has two books that are available. One is called Scientific Parenting, and the other is What Kind of Parent Am I? If you check the show notes in the podcast uh, for this episode, I'll have links to those books, as well as um, some YouTube videos, of Dr. Letourneau's talks, as well as a TED talk that she has. So without further ado, I'll present the interview with Dr. Letourneau, and we hope you enjoy. So we are here with Dr. Nicole Letourneau from the Oworko Center here in Calgary. And today we're going to talk a bit about some of the research that you're doing, what Oworko is maybe up to in general. 
and with some of the research you're doing, maybe talk about things that parents can think about uh, doing or changing or how they might get help mm-hmm. for things related to parenting, which is a big piece of the research that you do. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you. I'm Thank really you. glad to be here. I'm glad. I'm glad. So maybe before we get started into specifically your research, give an overview of Oworko for people who may not be aware and then some of the research you've been doing here. Okay. Well, the Oroco Center is the, um, affiliated with the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute, and our work is all focused on children's mental health and neurodevelopment. So we have researchers from nursing, that's where I'm from, yeah. uh, a lot of people from psychology, but we also have um, people from medicine as well. And I'm cross-appointed into medicine myself, into psychiatry, pediatrics, and community <laughs> health sciences. Yeah. Awesome. A lot of us are cross-appointed, and I yeah. think that really speaks to the interdisciplinary kind of work that we do. Um, we're, a lot of us are focusing on things having to do with uh, population health. Like, what are the mm-hmm. what are the things that uh, affect children's development that we can address in the communities yeah. where children live, not necessarily in the hospitals where children are sick. Um, so, a lot of the work that we do is health promotion and disease prevention. Um, but there are people here as well that are interested in um, in disease as well. Cool. I love that, and I am just more and more excited about different disciplines working together mm-hmm. we need to start kind of <laughs> realizing that other people might be working on things that are relevant to our area of practice mm-hmm. so and that we can collaborate and work together and solve problems together um, so specifically what are what's some of the research you've been working on or focusing on yeah well within the Oroco Center I have my own research program and it's called the child studies program um, child is actually an acronym for child health intervention and longitudinal development nice. studies program um, <laughs> And I've been doing work for about 20 years now. So wherever I go is where the Child Studies Program goes. But I've been doing work for years now on uh, developing and testing interventions to support children in families where there's toxic stressors. Mm -hmm. So the toxic stressors include depression in moms or dads, the family, addictions in those parents, um, and or family violence exposure. So I'm really interested in um, what affects parents um, and what parenting affects, yes. you know what I mean? <laughs> and also what we can do to support parents in these vulnerable situations to provide the best environments for children. So to do that kind of work, I, uh, as I suggested, I develop and test programs and services. Right now I have uh, two programs um, that we're testing in the community in randomized controlled trial formats. Nice. Uh, one is called ATTACH. It's another acronym. <laughs> I love acronyms. It's, but I don't like to say the whole long thing, so yeah, the yeah, acronyms yeah. are useful. But it stands for Attachment and Child Health. And it's an cool. intervention that, we have been, uh, that we've developed and we're testing in agencies that serve the families I mentioned. You know, they're affected yeah. by family violence and, and violence over their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, or low income, they don't have housing. Yes. Um, or they've been exposed to family violence and they, they've fled, the moms have fled to shelter situations. Okay. And so that attached program is uh, we've done some already some really great pilot work and we're in phase two testing. Nice. We're um, finding that it seems to be working. We're really excited about it because what it does is help parents to be more reflective in their interactions with their children. Um, so they're able to think we're helping them to think more about what their child's thoughts and feelings are, particularly in infancy and early yeah. childhood, like preschool age. And when people are stressed, mothers and fathers and 
caregivers are highly stressed. They're reacting. They're working more from the amygdala, that you know, the, the mm-hmm. basal kind of functions of their brain. And we're trying to help people be more reflective and use the frontal lobes of their brain to uh, to think about what their child's thoughts and feelings are. And we believe and we're seeing that when we help parents successfully do that, especially these parents that have been chronically stressed and are yeah. used to reacting, not to planning, not to thinking, not to just taking the time to observe and, and uh, um, see how their their own needs and wants affect their children and vice versa. Um, we're seeing that those parents are um, more sensitive to yeah. their children's needs and um, their children's attachment to their parents are enhanced and their children's mm-hmm. development is enhanced. So we're enhanced. So we're really excited about that program because we think it has implications for, for parents who are in a lot of stressful situations. Yeah. And, uh, and right now we're, develop, we're testing it with Discovery House, which is a, a women's shelter. Um, and we just finished testing it with Calgary Urban Project Society. Awesome. We've also tested it with another um, agency in town called Sunshine that serves uh, women affected by family violence. But that's one program that uh, we are delivering in the community and, and really excited yeah. about. And That's then I awesome. and I have other ones too, but uh, I have I could tell you about the VidKids study too. Go for it, yeah. The VidKids study is done with Calgary Public Health uh, okay. as part of Alberta Health Services, and it's a program for moms affected by depression specifically. Okay. And in that program, uh, again, a randomized control trial, yeah. we are um, randomizing people to get the program or not. Mm. And the program is designed to help moms be more uh, have better. It's a similar focus, yeah, yeah. different approach though. Um, we're helping moms become more sensitive in their relationships mm. with their infants because all the evidence shows that when moms are depressed even when you treat their depression their relationship with their children is negatively affected by the symptoms and um, when mom's symptoms alleviate the child is still interacting with the parent in the same way that they did before when the depression was um, highly prevalent and so we think everyone thinks the the scientific (laughs) community thinks that that's what explains why children who are affected by moms with depression have poor development um, and do you know poorer in school and that kind of thing. So we're trying to help those moms who are depressed have high quality serve and return relationship yeah. with their children, as, as we say, to be more sensitive, and responsive, and uh, we're testing that right now with, That's awesome. uh, with community agencies. So I I like my research to ha- it's designed for impact. Yeah. I'm trying to take the findings. Um, from the other branch of my research program, which I haven't talked about, but I'm trying to take the findings from that branch and apply it into interventions that we can deliver in the community to promote health. Yeah. And really what I'm trying to do is prevent the intergenerational transfer of trauma, yes. uh, the effects of trauma. So uh, that's why we're working with these very vulnerable families, trying to help them give the best start to their children yeah. so their children's development will be protected. Wow, um, that's but, awesome. <laughs> but, I, but I was talking to you about the other branch of my research program, which... Um, involves these large cohort studies, and that's a big part of what yeah. happens here at the Oroco Center. I'm the principal investigator of the Alberta Pregnancy Outcomes and Nutrition Study, and we've been following 2,200 mothers and their uh, babies, but uh, since their babies were fetuses. So we've been following these families, these moms, since uh, the first or second trimester of pregnancy, and now the oldest children in that 2,200 strong sample, uh, the oldest children are approaching age 12. Awesome. So from that... <laughs> So from that really rich data set, we've been able to look at things like how does depression in moms, in dads, how does anxiety in moms uh, affect children's development? Mm. And, you know, things like behavior yeah. in children. How does parent-child relationship quality potentially um, buffer the effects of stress, depression, anxiety in moms and dads on children's development? 
And I yeah. take that information and I weave it into the, the randomized control trials of programs and services. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm trying to understand <laughs> mechanisms, yeah. how things happen, and I'm trying to do something with that understanding so that we can provide the best uh, environments for children. Yeah, in these, Especially that. in these highly stressed in, um, situations. Yeah. And I think something I was thinking about when you said that was parents who are in these highly stressful situations... Um, want to be responsive they want to be there mm-hmm. for the kids mm-hmm. it's not that it, the intention isn't there that's exactly true it's that and uh, some of my colleagues will talk about you know self-regulation your cup is too full when you have um, financial stress mm-hmm. or trauma or mm-hmm. depression and so when your child needs something from you there's not as much to give mm-hmm. or what you're giving isn't as helpful maybe in that moment and so what you're saying is that we need to support families, parents, so that they can have that energy and the ability to have insight into, you know, what my child is communicating to me, what they need in this moment. So in that way, it's also empowering because it's not saying parents are at fault. It's saying mm-hmm. we as a society need to have things put in place so that parents have the energy and they're not worrying about their basic needs. They mm-hmm. can they can be more concerned about the, the you know the second level of needs, emotional and physical, and all those things. Um, so I really appreciated that piece. And I actually wanted to ask just for our listeners who may not, maybe some haven't made the connection uh, from when a mother or a parent is depressed and how it does affect a child's development. Maybe let's talk about examples of why that would happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you give a few for sure, our listeners? Sure, sure. Yeah. And I just wanted to say as well, I was smiling the whole time you were talking <laughs> because you pretty much took the words out of my mouth. We will often say to parents that you can't give what you don't have. And these families that are so stressed, they have very little left. And uh, you know, and I know, I know they're doing the best they can and they want the best for yes. their children. Yeah. I've, I've never come across yet a parent who didn't want the best for their children. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've worked with the most um, the struggling parents. Mm-hmm. So we're really just trying to give them a, a leg up. We're trying to yeah. give them a hand. And one thing I, I guess it's also important to mention is I don't see any of our programs. Uh, I mean, I think they're good and, and they seem to be, they're you know, starting to be shown to be effective. And I have a history of other programs that have been shown to be effective, but I don't think they're mm-hmm. panaceas. They have mm-hmm. to happen within a context of greater social support. These families are accessing services at agencies. They're yes. getting their housing needs met. Where Our program doesn't do that. Right. The agency does. But we're helping build that other layer of yes. psychosocial support so that they can provide psychosocial support to their children yes. and promote their development. Yeah. Yeah. So I really appreciate that, that, <laughs> your comments there. Um, yeah, I definitely, uh, <laughs> you know, want to... I wouldn't want anyone to think that... Uh, we think parents are wanting, yeah. you know what I mean? We think their parents are doing the best they can, and we're just trying to help them. Absolutely. And be that societal structure that needs to be around people to, you know, to do the yeah. hard job of being a parent. <laughs> so um, to answer your question, though, uh, um, depression, the symptoms of depression can really undermine mother's mm-hmm. abilities and father's abilities for that point, for that to, yeah. you know, to that point. About, you know, research will say 10 to 25% of mothers will be depressed postnatally, and uh, with respect to dads, about 10% of dads will be yeah. depressed postnatally. Um, but the symptoms of depression, you know, uh, low energy, um, well, low mood, mm-hmm. um, reduced functioning, you know, inability to, you know, kind of get up and yeah. get, get going and, and uh, you know, take a shower in the morning or, or, or do the things that your baby needs in a timely way. Right. Th- functioning around um, self-care and other care um, so the low mood uh, um, 
and low energy or um, hyper energy mm. or you know too much energy the, the symptoms of depression are at one end or the other you're either very low energy or high energy very low ability mm. to sleep or sleeping too much um, but these things are examples yeah. of behaviors or symptoms that interfere with parents abilities to be sensitive and responsive to their children so um, in the case of uh, you know, low, you know, you're really tired. Well, you yeah. might miss the, that child's cues, you know. Yes. In the case of, uh, at the other extreme, um, when you're hyper uh, vigilant because you have too much energy, mm-hmm. you're overshooting, you're, you're reacting to every cue yes. of the child. Yes. And um, we need to, you know, it's just the symptoms of depression are, are just the problem. They're, it's not the parents, it's yes. the symptoms of the disorder that are interfering with the parent's ability to be sensitive and responsive. So that's believed to explain uh, why depression affects children's development, but what? Ha- because that, that's that healthy serve and return mm-hmm. relationship that we want to see ideally yeah. in, in uh, you know healthy families um, is what underpins healthy brain architecture. So the kind of it's the stimuli that babies' brains need to yeah. to grow um, the way they should, and when that doesn't happen, um, it has some consequences for children's brains. Mm-hmm. But what has been a puzzle is when parents are treated for their depressive depressive symptoms, and the symptoms go yeah. away either through you know medication or counseling or some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal mm-hmm. psychotherapy. Still, the behavioral problems and the other developmental problems that seem to, that children seem to exhibit often persist, and and mm-hmm. similarly the relationship challenges that the parents have often persist because what has happened is that child from birth has grown up in this context, has adapted to a parent who is maybe less responsive, and as a consequence is a child who uh, maybe um, acts out a bit to get the reaction that a a child would get from a a healthier parent, you know. They have to act out a bit more or ramp up their crying Mm -hmm. or um, display their behavior more to get their parents' attention because parents have been depressed. Now, parents no longer depressed, the child doesn't suddenly change their no. behavior. They've already adapted to this new environment. So um, what we're trying, so what's understood is that it's the, it's how the depression affects the serve and return relationship between the parent and child that subsequently affects the child's development. So in our research, we're trying to help parents who are depressed maintain or improve the quality of serve and return relationship yeah. that they have with their child to overcome the effects of the symptoms of depression on their child's development. Yeah. And we're really excited about it. And one of the, the pilot findings that um, we've um, examined so far, we've because sh- we look at things like stress hormones in, mm. um, in the babies, and we had randomized the mothers who were depressed to get the program or not. And we looked at the, the mother's and babies in this in the uh, intervention arm where they got the the program mm. and the stress hormone levels of the babies were much less yeah and that also is consistent with the theory and the science in that if a mother is able to just be attuned to her infant's yes. uh, needs and be sensitive and responsive have that serve and return relationship that buffers the impacts of all sorts of stressors on the baby and so they would right. as a consequence have lower stress hormone levels and the other thing that's interesting mm. about that is in contrast, the control group that didn't have the intervention from us, you know, moms are just behaving with their children as they always did and mm-hmm. have, um, the stress hormone levels didn't change. But we, uh, we also know from other science that uh, when horm- stress hormone levels, the cortisol levels are elevated persistently or chronically, it's, um, it, it's neurotoxic. Right. In other words, it destroys uh, brain cells. Yes. Um, it destroys or doesn't contribute to healthy uh, network development in the brain. And it also is understood to contribute to other problems in other body systems yeah. like um, 
uh, you know, the pancreas and things mm-hmm. like that, and um, the adrenal glands and yeah. that sort of thing. So, which we also understand may explain some of the later uh, health consequences of this, these in early yeah. environments. That's why depression is considered a stressor that's toxic to children's development. Because when yes. a caregiver is not able, because of the disorder, to be sensitive and responsive, have that serve and return relationship with their child, their child's stress hormones are likely elevated and it undermines not just brain development, but body systems development which links yeah. to later um, poor health outcomes. So you actually have a biological outcome yeah. from things that seem behavioral or psychological, if you yeah. want to call them that. Exactly. That then may lead to um, diseases or condi- medical conditions later in life. Right, right. So it's really interesting how they're so interconnected. And, you know, it probably hasn't been until recently in history that we've really started to think that way, that... Mm-hmm those things are all interconnected and stress hormones in particular play a big role in all of that. So um, I think that's why it's important too for parents. I was thinking about it too, that uh, depression after having a child, I think is still something that I think a lot of people don't talk about Mm -hmm. and they might feel embarrassed or shameful, Mm -hmm. but it's so important to sort of say like, this is affecting me, but it's also affecting my Mm -hmm. child, Mm -hmm. my family their development and to be able to at least speak to someone that they can trust to try and find some help around that Mm -hmm. because it is so crucial Mm -hmm. I mean my hope is also culturally and as a society we can get to the point where that's not considered a shameful thing to be talking about like yeah I agree 100% you know similar to someone saying that they have diabetes or Mm -hmm. other medical conditions these are things that do affect our bodies as well Mm -hmm. as our minds and the way we behave so I think it's just important and my hope is that we as a study keep progressing towards just more acceptance around things that are related to mental health yeah I completely agree (laughs) and I mean if it's any consolation as I said I've been working in this field for about 20 years and uh I swear when I began, there was sort of a don't ask and don't tell sort of policy around mental health in in new mothers. And one of my early studies was looking at what supports uh, mothers who are depressed needed. Mm -hmm. And we talked about their experiences of being depressed and being a new mom. And and some of the the themes that came out of that qualitative analysis were really sad. I mean, moms equated depression postnatally with being a bad mother. Yeah. And it's not, it's not, that's terrible uh, (laughs) to think that. And so they would... um, of course be reluctant to tell anyone about that because it's an admission that I'm a terrible mother in their mind and it's just not true I mean even what I was saying you know how they need help with their serve and return relationship that doesn't mean they're a bad mother it means that there is a mother who needs support and they will get over this and that's the other there's lots of hopeful messages around postpartum depression women do get over it people do get over it It, they get over it more quickly when they have social support and that's exactly what we're trying to do some of the other um, one of the other interventions I uh, developed in uh, tested and found to be effective. It was with a colleague, uh, Cindy Lee Dennis, at the University of Toronto. But we developed Moms Link, uh, stands for another acronym. Mothers <laughs> offering mentorship and support, and uh, it was telephone-based support for mothers with depression. And um, uh, we recruited uh, any mother who screened above. We, screening is really important. Mothers yeah. don't know they're depressed. Often yes. they know they know they're not themselves, but they also think, well, I'm also a new mom. Yeah. I haven't been a mom, I'm or, or I have more tired. children. I'm tired. Yeah. And uh, they don't sort of equate the two, and and which is a shame because mm-hmm. then event then they eventually realize oh I have I'm still not over it and I mm-hmm. probably have been depressed for a number of months, so um, we think screening is really important and we did screen people when they called uh, 
their um, like, like their yeah. health link provider, they wanted to know about you know something to do with their child's medication, you know, for fever or whatever. They were screened automatically for depression, hmm. and then a lot of people screened above the cutoff, yeah. and they were offered our program. And what we found is, um, what we did in this program was offer mothers who were depressed. Hmm the support of another mother who had been depressed and recovered. Nice, nice. And they were hooked up to phone each other for once a week for about 12 weeks. So about yeah. an hour a week, we hoped that the peer who'd recovered from depression would call the mom who had depression. And they did. And uh, so think about this. We yeah. uh, A couple of things happened in that study that were interesting. We couldn't get anyone to go in the control group. So we initially decided... <laughs> It was supposed to be in our randomized control trial, but nobody wanted to be in the control group. Sometimes that's hard to do. <laughs> yeah, and so we ended up with a quasi-experimental design. So we just everyone who was recruited ended up having the program being matched with a peer mentor. So 100% of people were depressed by our screening tool yeah. at enrollment. At um, seven weeks later, only 9% of people were depressed. Wow. And at the end of the program, about 12, 13 weeks later, uh, 11% were mm. depressed. And we also discovered that as few as four phone calls from another mother yes. who had been depressed and recovered was all it took for most yes. of the sample to be no longer depressed. This was not about medication or counseling or right. anything. All it essentially was was mothers helping mothers. And that person um, gave that mom yeah. the energy she needed to recover and um, and hopefully yeah. be the mom she always wanted to be, you know. <laughs> so we're really that was a great program that we have since licensed to a, a, a Canadian provider. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's 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 amazing to me that it's not offered everywhere because I don't think you ever see those kind of numbers with medications or counseling or anything, especially right. not in as few as four phone calls. And um, we had no trouble recruiting mothers who'd been depressed and had recovered. They so wanted to yeah. reach out to another mother to help that mom yeah. avoid what they had gone through. Which probably helps them too. To oh, it like did. It did. They're being helpful and they're able to share their experience, which also further decreases stigma around that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I assume it probably costs a lot less than oh, formal yeah. therapy. <laughs> it took one nurse to supervise. Yeah. And, you know, we needed to make sure that the moms who were providing support felt supported themselves. And, sure. and they were becoming depressed to themselves yeah. and, and they weren't. Yeah. But we just, you know, you need that nurse, someone with yeah. that level of, uh, of education to be able Able to uh, manage the whole system yeah. but yeah very I mean the, the peers did it for free and I think that's interesting because it's beautiful even as a psychologist people would probably assume that I'm biased towards therapy telling people you need therapy for this that and whatever they're there's you know telling me about and oftentimes I'll say there's a lot of things you can do out there that mm-hmm. particularly in what you the category of social support that don't involve seeing a professional therapist Mm -hmm. and I think I don't know what it is if if, if it's maybe social media or how the world has gone with the internet and we've been more isolated but it's like we've forgotten that those things are there or they Mm -hmm. should be there Mm -hmm. or um, that they are available whether it's community groups or family or churches or whatever so Mm -hmm. it's just kind of interesting that sometimes the answer isn't necessarily having to see a professional. Sometimes mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's that and other things. Mm-hmm. But it's sometimes it can just be the relationship yeah. with mm-hmm. someone who can listen and be empathetic and maybe they have shared experience as well. So yeah. I think that's important to keep in mind because particularly for maybe some parents who, for whatever the reason, they may not want to reach out to a psychologist mm-hmm. or, or a therapist 
because that may be uncomfortable. There are other things you can do that you can try out. So it's good to hear these things. Well, and you know, I should add too, I mean, I talked about the toxic stressors. Yeah. This is the the Harvard Center, the Developing Child. They developed all these lovely metaphors for us to talk about stress. But there's a difference between a a toxic stressor. The difference between a toxic stressor and a tolerable stressor Hmm. is supportive relationships. So a toxic stressor like postpartum depression or family violence exposure, or you know, or addictions—they are only toxic in the absence of supportive relationships. So, a supportive person, a counselor, yeah. a friend, a neighbor, a someone who cares about yeah. that that person, can take that toxic stressor and make it tolerable. That's pretty for powerful the, for, the, for, the, for that mom and for the child yes. in that environment. Yeah. And I, I don't think we can emphasize that enough. I, I think it does. Without thinking of that, we end up limiting ourselves too much to the. I mean, the medical model is wonderful; has an important place. For sure. But you know, just social relationships are. Yeah. Um, very powerful yeah particularly around parenting and children's development children grow in an environment of relationships yeah that's where all their early models come from exactly (laughs) and i mean uh, if you look at the adverse childhood experiences uh, Mm -hmm. survey i mean all of those things it's like about you know it's about uh, neglect and abuse and household dysfunction Mm -hmm. Um, all of those things are about relationship qualities yes you know yes and uh and we know how powerful you know, the more adverse childhood experiences that you have, the more likely you are to have a whole host of health and mental health, physical mm-hmm, and mental mm-hmm. health problems over your lifespan. So thinking about the value of relationships in early child, in early life. Yes. Um, you know, we just, we need to consider that a lot more. Yeah. And yeah. it seems common sense, but it's something that I think we've been missing a little bit mm-hmm. over the years. Yeah. You've mentioned a few times this concept of serve and return. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, that's again one of the Harvard Center of the Developing Child yeah. uh, frameworks metaphors. They use serve and return, toxic stress, um, brain architecture, yeah. some others. But it, it's meant to convey uh, the idea of, of sensitivity and responsiveness. So yes. in early relationships, infants serve up cues, like you would a tennis ball in a tennis game or yeah, ping pong, yeah. and the caregiver should notice that tennis ball or whatever, or that cue, and serve it back. And I have heard, you know, people, t- I, I was just at a meeting of the day, and <laughs> someone talked about how a, a child could serve up a cue to the parent, the parent hits the ball, like, way out of the court. Like, they don't uh, even know, they might notice, but respond uh, in not even in an ineffective way. Right. So the idea is for the caregiver to notice the cue, um, notice the serve, hit the serve back, return the yeah. serve, and then it make, and then the child will cue again, and they, it makes for a lovely kind of a game or a, right. uh, an interaction. Um, you know, that's sort of the the, the, the game, the, the relationship is the, you know, layman's everyday terminology, but we talk about interactions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we want interactions to kind of, you know, to last and be pleasant. Yes. And, and it takes both partners, you know, noticing and responding to FAQ. So infants have yeah. a role to play as well in the serve and return relationship. So when a, and a caregiver returns, so for example, a baby cries. Mm-hmm. Parent picks up the baby that's returning the cue, you know, to yeah. try and soothe the baby, rocks the baby. Baby should soothe. Ideally, right. that would be um, uh, the proper, the best response for the baby. But colicky babies can't sometimes, right. and and sometimes preterm babies, you know, they are very um, prone to uh, being overstimulated and yeah. that kind of thing. And so the serve and return concept does talk about the, the the contributions of both parties. Yeah, the back and forth. Yeah, and for same sure. and same with sensitivity and responsiveness. Like babies should be able to be responsive to their caregivers ideally yeah do you want to have a healthy you know relationship when you know you baby smiles parent smiles back and yeah and you know so on and so forth but um but sometimes you know sometimes, sometimes it, there's something in, in the case of the parent yeah. it may be these toxic stressors that are interfering in the case of the infant it may very well be uh, physiologic uh, right. you know health issues that are interfering yeah, yeah that makes sense yeah and i noticed um in uh, the book that you wrote 
um, recently, what kind of parent am I? Um, you talk about this idea of serve and return, mm-hmm. social support. Mm-hmm. The other term that I noticed in there that was kind of interesting was this idea of reflective mm-hmm. function. Mm-hmm. I think maybe most listeners might not know what that means, but I noticed it was quite related to this idea of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. So maybe explain that for the listeners and we'll talk a bit about that. Yeah, I'm glad to give you a chance to elaborate. <laughs> uh, the attach intervention I mentioned at the beginning yeah. here uh, is focused on helping parents develop reflective function or develop their capacity for it because everyone has it to some degree. Um, so reflective function is the ability to uh, uh, think about mental states in others and ourselves. Yeah. So think about another person's thoughts and feelings and think about our own thoughts and feelings. And when we're reacting... Mm-hmm. We don't tend to, to take the time to do that. And if you are able to think about your child's thoughts and feelings, then you're going to be more sensitive to their needs. Right. So um, it's believed reflective function is capacity for reflective function, the higher. And you can have you know very low reflective function or very high, but everyone's got mm-hmm. some capacity. But we also, as I suggested, we also know that when you're highly stressed, it's undermined. Yes. Just think of when you get in a little fender bender or something. And yeah. Your ability to plan and imagine what the person mm-hmm. who was in the accident with you is thinking and feeling is probably not top of no. mind. You're a little <laughs> bit, um, you know, disoriented, and yeah. you know, and that's what happens to people who are constantly stressed. They're not really able to imagine what someone else is thinking, and feeling because they're busy reacting, yes. thinking, "Oh my God, what am I going to do about this car? Right. Where, how am I going to get to work?" Like, um, oh, I'm so ups- like just um, overwhelmed by your own emotion yeah, yeah. and not able to really think about your own emotion or thoughts or those of others so people that are highly stressed have this reduced capacity and so our attach intervention is is focused on helping Mm -hmm. parents develop or build um um those that capacity in the context of their stressful lives yeah yeah and we're finding that just it's really fascinating and we're so excited about this project and i mean i I told you about my you know love of the harvard center developing child's um um, metaphors, but they uh, in turn love our project, our attached project. Yeah. We've been named one of their frontiers of innovation uh, uh, projects. I think because of the potential mm-hmm. that we're we're showing with our pilot data. But we are able to show that with practice over ten weeks, we can help very stressed parents have higher reflective function yeah. at levels that are at least equal to what people are seeing with intense psychotherapy. Wow! So which and what we're doing is meant to be we're happening in community centers, by social workers, by nurses, by even right. child life specialists, not psychiatrists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a place for psychiatry, for sure. but it's also really expensive. Yes. And we think that lots of people who are highly stressed could benefit from this, you know, building this capacity. So that's what reflective function is all about. It's believed that if you have, if you develop a higher um, reflective function, you're going to be more sensitive to yeah. your children's cues, which will feed into a more positive parent-child relationship yeah. for that child, which is protective, and that will promote that child's ability to have healthy relationships themselves yeah, over yeah. their lifespan. And ultimately, I, I'm drawing this little circle in the air, but I kind of see a place where if mm-hmm. we can promote that reflective function in the parent, and it has all these consequences, we can actually prevent the transmission of um, of trauma yes. through relationships that aren't as good as they could be, um, particularly yeah. in families where there's a lot of stress. And that's where I see a lot of the work you guys are doing is um, I'm, I'm excited because it's really focusing on prevention and being proactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think up until recently in history, we've sort of always been on the offensive and saying, okay, now someone has depression, how do we treat it? Which mm-hmm. is great because that's helpful. But I think we're at a point in our 
development as humans where we're saying we actually want to try to avoid some of this or at least decrease or minimize the negative effects of some of these things as early as possible, mm-hmm. especially now knowing what we know about the brain and how it develops and how the environment can affect that, whether it's positive or negative. So it's it's an interesting focus because instead of just sort of saying, well, now we have this problem, let's solve it. It's like, let's just avoid the problem. Let's just avoid the problem in the yeah. first place yeah. and let's give parents and just people in general let's give them tools that sort of help them to not get to that point of needing more serious supports or interventions um, from say psychiatry or things like that so yeah I just found that kind of interesting that uh, and the other thing that you were mentioning is this idea that you said you kind of you, you said parents all parents to a certain degree have the capacity for reflective function. You're just helping them to be able to, I would say, execute it. Because again, it's that whole idea of if your cup is too full, like Mm -hmm. there's no room to be responsive, patient, um, empathetic, thinking to yourself, what could this person be needing from me right now? It's just pretty much impossible. So again, it sort of takes the blame out of that situation and saying no 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 like as as caregivers or parents or adults who work with children there is also a factor of we have to kind of take care of ourselves first so that we can be available in a positive way to children that's kind of what I appreciate you saying so I think a lot of parents I work with I can tell they don't take care of themselves Mm -hmm. because they're just so run ragged with Mm -hmm trying to help their kids which is still very honorable but I almost have to remind them you know if you're running ragged Mm -hmm. there's only so much you can offer yeah there's a little left yeah yeah so but you know those parents I mean you have to give them kudos and support and hope that they will take take what they need they're doing their best (laughs) my gosh yeah and, you know, there's a lot of, um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of honor in that, too. But I like to think, I love this metaphor of, uh, have you ever heard the metaphor of, you know, you're on the, the, the banks of a river and, uh, you know, you see a baby float by and mm. you're like, oh, you pull that baby out of the water and then another baby floats by and you pull that baby yeah. out of the water and then like a toddler. <laughs> everyone's like, we need, and there's all these babies and toddlers are floating <laughs> by and everyone's like, we have to get boats. We have to get, you know, we have to get make a net. We've got to do all these things yeah. to catch the babies. And then someone says, well, why don't we just go up river and see who's throwing the babies in the water? Right. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I'm trying to prevent the babies from being thrown in the water. Yeah, that's a perfect <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I think our parents who are listening will very much appreciate that. Yeah. That someone is trying to answer the the uh, original question, the pro- the original problem that's creating the other mm-hmm. more immediate problems, maybe, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, there was something in your book that I read that was quite... I found quite interesting. Maybe we could talk a bit about it. You talked about this idea that parenting becomes a balancing act. So, because we talk, you, you sort of mentioned other parenting approaches that are sort of out in popular oh, yeah, culture, and yeah, yeah. you sort of contrasted this idea of just letting kids be completely independent versus being very, very supportive and sort of not letting them make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Maybe chat a bit about about that and kind of where you think that comes into play. 
yeah what the importance of that is yeah I mean I think uh, you're referring to a section of the book where I talk about you know how you get these news reports how helicopter parenting does this or that right. or uh, what's the free-range parenting is yeah. good for kids or these sort of approaches these general approaches but really it, parenting is about being the parent your kid needs you to be yeah and um, it can be it's different for each child you have mm-hmm. um, and what that takes is the ability to be sensitive and responsive. Yes. You need to be actually be able to see their serves. Right. You need to be able to pay attention to how they responded to your yeah. returns. You know, yeah. you have to be able to think, be reflective and think about their mental states. Yes. All the science tells like the science. There's very little science, if any, on <laughs> on these sort of I call them pop culture conceptions of parenting. Right. You know, um, which are kind of these broad strokes approaches. I kind of think I like to th- the science actually is. Um, teaches us sort of first principles. You need to be reflective, mm-hmm. which is, you know, think about your child's thoughts and feelings. You need to have adequate social support. Yes. And it's very important if you don't have it to try and find ways to get it in yeah. your community. You know, parenting is a hard job. Uh, your needs are uh, put yeah, on, the, yeah. on the shelf a lot, and you need to find ways to, as you say, get that sustenance you need, that, that support that you need to uh, be the parent that your child needs. Yes. And... Um, and, and, and parents are often reluctant to go out and seek that because they feel like they're taking, but there'll be opportunity to be reciprocal later. You know, sure. just just so it's about social support, it's about serve returns, about being reflective. Um, it's about addressing the stressors in your life that might yeah. be undermining your parenting. Like, yeah, do yeah. you have a, a mental health issue? Go get help right. or seek help. Uh, and and uh, you know, I hate the idea that we're still stigmatizing um, mental health issues yes. because it's a health issue like any other. Yes. So you know, and if you have an addiction, you know, start to deal get with your addiction. Help, yeah. If you um, are struggling um, with income, try and, and find ways to you know mm-hmm. improve your education or get yes. some income supports or or tap into community resources that your yeah, your yeah. kids could benefit from. So these are and those are the chapters in my book essentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, those are the, the key things. But, you know, all, the, other, the other really important thing that this research shows again and again and again, and we go back to this point, is relationships can overcome the most toxic of stressors. So yeah. the social support, the serve return, the reflective function, um, those can overcome all uh, the stressors. Yeah. And, uh, and are, are really worth paying attention to. And, yeah. and it's not about whether you're uh, letting your child walk home from school alone or, you know, following up with the teacher uh, after <laughs> after a poor exam rem- uh, right. report or something it's really about those day-to-day moments that yes. are encapsulated in those ideas of serve and return reflective function and social support yeah they're you know you know they're not um it's not rocket science yeah but it's so important <laughs> yeah, yeah it's so important I, i've you know it's very well established now that those are foundational to not just child health but population health yes. because children are the, become the population. <laughs> it's true, they do. They're part of the population and they, they become adults at some point. Yes, yeah. And so if you want a healthy population, you need to start with healthy families. Yeah, yeah. And I also like to say healthy family, not healthy children, because children grow in families, you know. Exactly. So you can't even just say, oh, we're going to focus on children's health and development and yeah. and that's it. Uh, no, you have to work with the parents yeah. and their needs to help them For sure. be what their children need to be to promote healthy child development. So, um, you know, they, parents shouldn't have to go it alone. I think it's a societal obligation. Yeah, and sure. and uh, when you think of it that way, it's very easy to imagine a, a different kind of world where, mm-hmm. where um, you know, families have more support for yeah, this hard yeah. job they have. Yeah. yeah. I like, too, how you said um, good parenting is knowing what kind of parent your child needs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if you have 
more than one child, they might have different styles. Mm. But also I think in the same child, it's like at some points in the day or the week, the type of parent that the child needs may have to be shifted. The the flexibility factor is there that um, more firmness may be required in a particular situation and more flexibility and tenderness in another. Mm -hmm. So it's just Mm -hmm. that ability to, like you said, really take in what's going on in the situation and what your child is communicating to you by their behavior, their words, their body language, and to say what's needed right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the challenge. It's it's simply stated, but not easy. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And as soon as, I mean, children keep growing. So as soon as you adjust to one developmental stage, and it's been, oh, I nailed it. Now I know what to do with this. They change again. They change again. So parents also need to forgive themselves. Yes. And we need to forgive parents. I mean, parents shouldn't, you know, yes. oh my gosh, we all have to recognize how hard it is and and uh, and just, you know, help parents be the best they can be. And that parents yeah. are allowed to make mistakes, mm-hmm. to not know all the answers. Yeah. I think as long as there's um, that, uh, well, and you kind of related in the book to that idea of being mindful, mindfulness, to be able to ask yourself those kind of mm-hmm. self-monitoring questions. Mm-hmm. What does my child need right now? Am I stressed? You know, do I need to take a break before I respond to this? Mm-hmm. Do I need to get mom or dad to help? Do I need, you know, mm-hmm. all these questions that you can kind of ask if you're able to in the moment um, to be able to provide those things. So to be mindful, I think, is an important factor. And that's that idea you said about reflective function. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one... Uh, the one quote I wrote down here from your book that I thought was really interesting, and maybe we'll kind of end by talking about this, is um, you said the big life experiences are hard to ignore or miss. So maybe big, I think you might be referring to more of the traumatic things. But it could be positive too. Yes, yeah. So they're hard to uh, miss the big ones, but the power of little experiences can change everything. And I sort of, when I talk to my clients, my families that I work with, I try to remind them and myself too that... Sometimes we actually have to focus on how is it that we're dealing with the small things in life because actually those are super important. And if it's hard to even handle the small things, mm. how am I supposed to handle the big things like traumas or mm. financial stress or whatever? So even things like, you know, I'll give kind of a silly example, but being irritated if I get a you know, telemarketer call during my dinner if that makes me go from zero to a hundred, how how on earth am I going to handle financial stress or mm. a fi- or a, an illness in the family or something that's considered big, you know? And I just thought, give me your sort of uh, perspective on that because I thought that was a really powerful thing to remind parents, but everybody really, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to day to day. Yeah, well, what I was meaning by that was the little things are those day-to-day, those moment-to-moment interactions, like the serve and return relationships yeah. and, uh, you know, and being reflective in the moment. And they, they're just little momentary things. And in contrast to the big toxic stressors, like, you know, you have been mm-hmm. exposed, you know, you had a partner that was abusive. It's big. You yes. see it. It's, you know, and it, and it seems like that's going to overwhelm everything. Or, you know, you're really, you're really uh, struggling with a childhood trauma. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's big, right? You can't yeah. miss it. 
Um, but in the in your example, you know, if you're having troubles coping with a telemarketer, um, I mean, what I'm thinking of when I when I when I wrote this, when I, what I was thinking of when I wrote that statement, was the idea of how the little things in your interaction with your child are mm-hmm. the most are more important than whether or not there was violence uh, in your own history or, or you know recently. Yeah. It's um, your ability as a parent to kind of regulate yourself. Yes. And if the telemarketer um, is too much, then, right. you know, it's a signal to yes. someone to be, you know, hopefully uh, the reflective parent is going to think, I need help. Yeah. I, I'm obviously not coping. I need right. to get some social support. Yeah. could be counseling. Yeah. I need to talk to a friend. I need to go for a walk. Yeah, whatever it is. So that yeah. I can do those day-to-day little little interactions that are going to be supportive to my child's development and, yeah. and prevent that big thing from being toxic to my child. Yes. Because each little interaction that seems in the moment to be very sort of fleeting and it comes and it goes, they add up to hours, days, weeks, months of patterns of being, of ways of responding or reacting that then affect a child's development. Um, And even for people who don't have children who might be sort of listening to this and thinking about that themselves too is... Every moment where I react rather than respond and, and don't think through what I'm doing because I'm stressed mm-hmm. is another pa- you know piece of the pattern of negative things that are going to keep stressing me out. So mm-hmm. I just really liked that idea of let's start small and let's actually say, and it's not to make people feel nervous or again like I have to be perfect at every little thing you know when I put my kids socks on and that kind of stuff oh no but it's about being present and saying these these moments actually really really do matter Mm -hmm. and I'm just gonna bring the best that I can and they matter more than the trauma yeah they matter more than the trauma yeah, and, and, but yeah. you know the, the the big I mean an example that comes to mind is if a parent you know your person anyone you know you have these days where yeah. you're just not coping well you're tired or whatever and if you're unable to regulate yourself in response to something like say say there's a, a dog or a yeah. toy that kind of is kind of frightened your child a little and you right. just don't have the wherewithal to regulate yourself you can't calm down because the dog's kind of frightening you or it's too much for you how are you going to deal with your child's uh, reaction right. to it and um, yeah. that those those are the, what we mean by what I mean by the little things that that can make a big difference. So, yeah. but the other thing is, <laughs> parents also need to recognize that they don't need to be perfect all the time. No. I mean, been, I also say to parents, you have many chances to do the right thing or the best thing yeah, by your child. You yeah. know, so uh, repair is also really well understood. You know, if you if a parent didn't react well in the moment, maybe might you're not going to apologize to or whatever. Right. But you might you'll make a oh, you know do that yeah. differently next time. Um, to an older child, you might say, oh yeah, I really didn't react well there, did I, mom? was just as scared as you exactly. um uh you know that sorry about that I, i'm you know, human too yeah but i'm also yeah. recognizing yeah but now i'm now i recognize that and i i'm i want to comfort you now yeah, yeah. so you know there's opportunities to either repair or try differently next time and we have lots of opportunities for practice yeah yeah and children are resilient <laughs> yeah they are resilient they're not going to break exactly um but i my whole <laughs> point about the big versus the little is those little day-to-day interactions yeah. are so powerful yeah and um, and can definitely make what we call toxic stressors be. Yeah, uh, and that's so. kind of where I like to start with my parents is to say to them, you know, we may not be able to solve these really big things and they won't be solved mm-hmm. quickly mm-hmm. or they may never be solved. But what we can do is decide today, you know, or this week, what small changes feel manageable that aren't gonna add extra stress to an already stressful family. So what are some small things, one or two things 
that you can be, you know, consciously aware of throughout your week, give it a try, see how it goes. And it just feels a lot more doable for parents mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of saying, um, you know, go to therapy and just get this all fixed. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that may not be as helpful of a message. <laughs> well, in the end, we want parents and people to yeah. come to terms with their traumas, mm-hmm. you know, see how it fits in their life. But my gosh, that takes yeah. a long time to get there. Uh, I mean, for anybody. Um, you know, some things people need to end up processing for many, many years of yeah. their lives, even with therapy of all sorts. But I think it's a very powerful message that, the, you know, while you're doing that, mm-hmm. these little day-to-day things that you can do with your child are going to, you know, prevent your child from maybe having the same yeah, kind yeah. of childhood you had. Yeah. Or um, prevent your child from having, or actually promote. We don't need to prevent, but promote your promote child's it, yeah. best outcomes. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, for me, that's, um, these are simple things. And maybe that's why, you know, they don't get as much attention as they should. Yeah. But um, they're simple things. I think that if parents know that the simple thing can make a big difference, yeah. maybe be more likely to, to do it. Yeah. Or try it. Well, if it's yeah. backed by research, I kind yeah, of notice it, that sometimes it <laughs> you just have to tell people, actually, research has shown us this this seemingly very simple, mm. non-complicated, non-technology, you know, thing is actually quite helpful. And they yeah. kind of go, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I was here to get something super complex. Like, no, well, no. Well, that's <laughs> why I do the, the, the big studies of, like, I really want to know how does social support affect how mother's depression affects her child development? Okay, so I, I find yeah. these variables and I find these associations. And that's a, a, important information. But then I need to do the next study, which is, how does that work? How can right. we make that social support work? Right. So I do the mom's link study. Yeah. How can we show that uh, parent-child relationship quality uh, helps improve children's outcomes when moms are depressed? Then I do the VidKids study. Exactly. So I like to, I want to understand, I think it's really important, but I have to take it to the next level. I have to show mm. a strategy. Yes. I have to show that a particular, you know, I don't, <laughs> I am, um, I mean, it's one thing to understand variables, you know, and how they relate to each other, you know, concepts or, you know, social support, parent-child yeah. relationship, how they relate to each other. But it's another thing to give the information to a service provider or a parent about what that means. Yes. What that can look like. Real life. In treatment <laughs> or in just your everyday interactions. Yeah. So uh, that's why I spend so much time on the intervention work, you know, just yeah. really trying to show how, yeah. how. Which is helpful. Not just what, you know, that there is a relationship, but how how it (laughs) it can improve people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. So if people want to get a copy of your book, how would they get it? It's available on Amazon. Okay. And I think it's also, uh, there's probably copies still at various chapters uh, around, Chapters and Indigo. I'll put a link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Are there any other resources you'd want to give to parents of things we talked about today? hmm. Well, I have, I mean, really what summarizes my research life yeah. for the last 20 years is I have two books one's called Scientific Parenting oh, it was yeah, published in yeah. 2013 and it's what science reveals about parental influences the byline yeah. and it really summarizes all the evidence that shows how important how important parenting mm-hmm. is to children's development if you didn't know it um, <laughs> uh, I, I say in the intro it's like it's the book you want to read when you're feeling guilty about not you know you know missing yeah. that meeting at work for your kids school concert it's important ah. to be there so you know it, it really reinforces that how important parenting role is and yeah. you know society's obligation I think to yes. parents. and then the, the new book uh, what kind of parent am I am um, there's surveys in there the, yeah. the byline is um, self surveys to reveal the, reveal the impacts of toxic stress and more so you know people can do surveys to find out their strengths and, and areas to, yeah. uh, to build upon and in a lot of ways that book really would help a parent to maybe um, promote some self-reflection and 
maybe improve that emotional intelligence piece or yeah. help help promote it or remind people I guess to to go there to to use that part of their their brain their their way of being with their kids so I appreciate those two I'll put them in the show notes along with the Oracle link um, and if there's any other ones we come up with we'll put them in there as well okay. and I also if people google me on yeah. YouTube as well there's a whole lot of various videos there's videos of Perfect. me speaking of postpartum depression there's videos of me speaking of attachment which we haven't spoken of here yeah. but um, how parent-child interaction quality relates to secure attachment yeah. and um, and uh, you know how it's related to later development too so there's lots of uh, yeah and there's even podcasts i even have a one podcast or two Perfect. out there somewhere so but they can be found i yeah. know that the uh, youtube videos are are um, pretty popular pretty easy to yeah find. and easy to find and okay. i've got a ted talk as well we'll put some links oh well, yeah i'll find your ted talk yeah. and i'll put the links out so people yeah. can find them mm-hmm. um thanks so much nicole thank you well, for this has been really fun all the information you shared with us and i hope our listeners check out your books and your videos me too happy yeah. parenting yes thank you <laughs> <laughs> listening to Brainchild. This podcast episode was brought to you by support from the Oworko Center. The Oworko Center at the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute is dedicated to studying neurodevelopmental disorders and child mental health. The center draws its support from a large group of multidisciplinary researchers across the University of Calgary with expertise encompassing a broad range of neurodevelopmental and pediatric mental health research. For more information about the Awerko Center, visit researchforkids.ucalgary.ca. To stay connected to Brainchild, visit canlearnsociety.ca, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. If you have a specific topic that you would like to hear about on our podcast, please send your suggestions to brainchild at canlearnsociety.ca. CanLearn Society is a not-for-profit organization located in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We serve children, youth, and adults who have literacy, attention, and learning challenges. For more information about CanLearn, check out our website at canlearnsociety.ca. At CanLearn, we are dedicated to unlocking potential so all can learn.